Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. There's an old expression that says that Beirut has died a thousand times and a thousand times been reborn. I think the prism through which many of us learn about Lebanon is through its turbulence. Uh, And that's kind of the same way we in the wine industry talk about Chateau Moussar. Founded in 1930, the winery survived literal bombshells during the country's violent Lebanese civil war. The war lasted for 15 years, and Serge Hoshar made wine for all but two of those vintages. He literally would drive through bombings to get grapes from the vineyard in the Beka Valley to the winery, which is fucking bonkers to think about, right? I mean, the level of stress that not only the grapes, but the people that made that wine went through to, to bottle that, like it's crazy. And there's a fair bit of that going on right now. Unless you've been living under a rock, last month an explosion in Beirut caused at least 200 deaths, $10 billion in damage, and displaced 300,000 people. It rocked the country's government, wrecked the currency, and now we're less than two months removed from the explosion, and Lebanon is still in the very early stages of a very fragile recovery. I called Mark Hoshar, the third generation at Musar, the son of legendary winemaker Serge Hoshar, uh, to talk about how the crisis has impacted the winery as well as the path for Musar's wines moving forward. I think it's really important in times like this to continue to shine a spotlight on what's going on in these places once the news cycle has moved on. So I'm really excited to talk to Mark. We'll just jump right into the conversation. Hello. Hey, how are you? Hello. Let me just increase the volume a bit. Can you hear me well? Do I need to put some um, uh, things on? Or no, I, I can hear you fine. And uh, it doesn't sound like I hear any kind of like reverberation on the other side. So you sound good. Okay, perfect. You said you've been doing oh, a couple a... kind of like virtual tastings and whatnot, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since, well, since, uh, I guess since it started, let me just make sure. Is the light okay? Uh, I'm in a very light space, so it tends to... Yeah, it looks like you've got a lot of sunshine there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, wait, let me see if I can put some more lighting here. No, I think this is a great setup. You've got some beautiful art on the wall behind you. I'm in a, like a, a winter garden type of uh, setting. So here yeah. you have the windows on top. So when it's sunny, it's great. It tends to be a bit warm. Uh, especially now in the summer, and then in the winter it's freezing, so it's uh, getting the balance right. So I, I can use it in the, all f- the in the fall and in mm-hmm. the spring. That's great. So you're based in Munich full time, right? Yeah, yeah, that's my mm-hmm. uh, that's my base now. So my you're in the midst of uh, Oktoberfest, right? Isn't um, Munich kind of like one of the hubs for that? Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, Oktoberfest got cancelled this year. Like so many things, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of the lockdowns. So, uh, no, so they absolutely, <laughs> there's nothing happening. Well, there's nothing happening. What they did was they um, decided instead to have small uh, sets of either restaurants or front, you know, fair components in different parts of the city, but okay. not one big one. So when you walk around, sometimes you get a, you, you come across some of these uh, little huts that they've uh, spread mm-hmm. around the city. Well, you can still drink beer even at home. I mean, yeah, 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 that's for sure. <laughs> an Oktoberfest of one in in each house. So exactly, exactly. So is, um, is Munich? I, I've never been to Munich. I've been to Frankfurt. I've been to Berlin. Um, but 
it, it strikes me from an outsider's perspective as very much like a beer place. Yeah. I mean, is there a strong wine culture in that part of Bavaria? Yeah, yeah, no, there is. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously people drink beer. That's the beer garden culture. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but a lot of people also drink wine. Yeah. Uh, so it's really a bit of both, but the Oktoberfest, obviously during that period, <laughs> it's mainly beer. There is one tent out of the, I don't know how many tents that's yeah. uh, actually a wine tent. So you okay. can go there, but well, usually it's, it's, I think it's reserved for those who drink beer or, or who go like every two days and who eventually want to change. But those who a little don't intermezzo. go that often, yeah, those who don't go that often actually would typically just go for the beer. Do you find yourself drinking beer very often? Uh, yeah, when, when you're, when it's hot outside and you're in the beer garden and the, the mm -hmm. wine list is not great. Yes, definitely a, a beer then makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, and and it's good beer actually. Here you you get quite good ones. What people don't know when they're visiting is that the the beer that is served at the Oktoberfest tends to be a little bit higher in uh, ABV. So you're not at four, but like six or seven uh, degrees alcohol. Mm -hmm. So like uh, twelve, yeah. That adds up if you're drinking a lot of pitchers of yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you're having like one liter at a time, and so yeah, <laughs> people who are not used to like the stronger beer don't realize, and then oh, you're gone. <laughs> That's funny. That's crazy. Well, uh, it's so nice to see you again. Um, we saw one another. It was almost a year ago exactly that you were in Houston, and we did that really fun event at um, Georgia James, one of the restaurants here in town, and it was in the middle of the World Series, I think, or one of the yes. baseball playoffs, because I remember at least one person was wearing their Astros baseball like jersey to the tasting, which I thought was so fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. You know, wine is part of life. So it's normal to, to share everything with it. So your yeah. life kind of shut down in March. That's when you were stationed. But you do a lot of traveling normally throughout the year. But um, where were you when everything kind of like came to a close? Were you in the process of traveling or were you already at home? No, I was already at home. I, I mean, um, where was I? Actually, I was in uh, Austria. I was skiing in Austria during mm -hmm. uh, February for a week because we, my, my daughter had the half-term break and this is when it started happening uh and so we arrived back probably early march and by then yeah uh, started, things uh, started getting uh, a bit uh, more difficult uh, people yeah. talking about uh, closures lockdowns and so actually i stayed um, mm -hmm. the biggest concern we had was that around 20th of march uh, mm -hmm. there's a very big wine fair uh provine uh, yeah yeah in uh, Dusseldorf. Uh, and up to two weeks ahead of that, it hadn't been canceled. Obviously, people were panicking. A lot of other events were being canceled. But, mm -hmm. you know, being uh, in uh, six or seven big halls with 10,000 people uh, tasting wines with glasses and yeah, that would have been actually uh, a bit difficult. So yeah. that was probably the first really big event for, for us that was canceled. And then after that, unfortunately, yeah, all the rest was all my trips were done for. Yeah. Even the ones actually now in September, usually I travel in, uh, in October, November, it's the busiest period for me, but you know, this year it's going to be all the uh, zoom and Instagram mm -hmm. and uh, that's how we're going to do it. It's crazy because so many ways that like the wine industry is set up things like Provine, Vinitaly, you know, all of those have been canceled. I think the last big one was probably in the Loire Valley, right? The, the natural salons that go on there. This idea of like traveling to markets and working like all of that has changed so much in the past what six seven months so. yeah, yeah dramatically but this is when you realize the power of uh, actually i guess uh, all these uh, new uh, ways of communicating all the mm -hmm. social media because we've done i've done i don't know probably 20 25 uh, events on uh, not events but like uh, 
discussions, uh, seminars, whatever you call want to call them, mm -hmm. uh, online, and it's been extremely useful because you reach out to so many people in places that you might not necessarily visit. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Even, yeah, we've even had a, a few events with uh, more than 800 people on them. 800 wow. people in one shot is like a, a big number. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's not the same, mm -hmm. but uh, in some way, uh, people were stuck at home, not really very busy, at least at the beginning, um, and so had time on their hands and wanted to, uh, you know, uh, be entertained and so this was actually a good way of, of doing it uh, having fun learning something new you know and being exposed to um, you know uh, the story of uh, Mizar in my case but uh, of course uh, with a lot of other wineries it was the same and you guys had just published your book right yes yes let me see if, uh, yes exactly yes. Voilà, look one. at that you got the whole family on the cover there that's yes, great. yes, exactly. Yeah, my my wife complained that there were only men on this picture. I said, <laughs> yeah, but the family currently is just men who are actually there. But uh, hopefully, the next generation will have a bit, a few more uh, mm -hmm. women also on there. You said you were traveling with your daughter, but uh, what what age is she in this? She's fifteen. Fifteen. Well, okay. Almost, almost fifteen. Yeah. So she's got a little bit of time before she needs to jump into the wine industry or make a decision one way or the other, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My brother also has uh, three children. They're a bit older. Uh, my cousin has children, same age as my daughter, you know, but it, it depends. Uh, yeah. Each path is different for every person. Uh, my brother joined the winery th you know, almost 30 years ago. I joined 10 years ago. My cousin mm -hmm. joined 20 years ago. So it really depends on the path of every single person. So will our kids uh, follow the same? Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, it's, it's a bit early to, to tell for the moment. Yeah. Well, fun. Well, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Musar has always been one of the wineries that I've loved working with. And I've got my bottle of 2009 ready to go. I opened it about maybe 20 minutes ago. So it'll open up really nicely, I think, over, the, uh, over our little chat. I'm looking forward to it. And I think some people have an understanding of the winery, but it's such an amazing story. And we always talk about like wine having a sense of place. And I don't think any winery exemplifies that quite as much as Muzar does. Do you want to just give people like a quick intro, a quick primer to the winery? Uh, with pleasure, with pleasure. <laughs> um, so why Lebanon? I guess the first question is, <laughs> how come we're talking about Lebanon uh, and wine? Uh, what is the association? Um, so we've had wines in Lebanon for around five and a half to 6,000 years. The birthplace of wine is probably Mesopotamia, Georgia, uh, as far as we know now. But we know that uh, eventually, uh, a couple of thousand years later, so we're talking 6,000 years ago, wine made its way to the Middle East. And this is where the Phoenicians, who were our ancestors, uh, the ancestors of you know, the modern Lebanese, who lived actually in the same mountain area uh, that we have in, in Lebanon, who were great at producing wines, at uh, developing a technique, really, to, uh, to make wines uh, that were uh, good quality, sustainable, that could last also, that could be uh, drunk, not immediately, but uh, actually could travel. Um, and these Phoenicians also were good at trade. They had boats, they were actually really uh, going across the whole of the Mediterranean, uh, setting up different cities uh, across uh, Northern Africa and you know, uh, up to actually even uh, to the end uh, of the Mediterranean, towards the Atlantic side. And they uh, basically sold things. And one of the things they sold was wine. Uh, and so they really contributed to developing the knowledge of how to make wine and also, uh, you know, spreading it and uh, selling it. And this is how wine eventually made its way from our part of the world to what is now Europe. So that's the history to explain why mm -hmm. we've had wines in, in the area. 
Uh, actually, if you fast forward to 2,000 years ago, the period where Jesus Christ was in this part of the world, in uh, southern Lebanon, in a village called Cana, uh, his first miracle was to transform water into wine. Now, obviously, he decided to switch it into wine, not beer, not schnapps, or not anything else. Um, and that's because of the history of winemaking, because wine was already part of the culture uh, mm -hmm. and the, the way you ate and drank and enjoyed life. Um, and there are references in other parts of the Bible, as well as in the Old Testament, to the wines of Lebanon. Like, there, there's even, like, asides, like, the wine had, like, the fragrance or the flavor of Lebanese wine. Right. There, there's clear references there to, to the history of winemaking. Exactly, exactly. And, it, yeah, I think it refers to, uh, yeah, Lebanon or Mount Lebanon. Uh, mm -hmm. So, again, fast forward. So we were 2,000 years ago. Now we fast forward again, uh, let's say, to modern day times. And here we're talking 1900s. Uh, at the time, Lebanon uh, was part, at the beginning of the 1900s, was part of the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire. End of World War I, uh, the Turkish Empire disintegrates. The English and the British, uh, sorry, the English and the French drop all the borders of uh, what is now the Middle East and separate all the countries. And this is the birth of Lebanon. And we're talking early 1920s. And at that point, my grandfather was still young. Uh, he was studying in France. We're Lebanese, but we, we speak French. So he studied in France uh, medicine, actually. Came back and was in love with wine. Uh, realized that there would be uh, an opportunity to create a, a winery, to have actually the French army who was posted in Lebanon buy it as well. Uh, and so that's the genesis of Mizar. So he started really from zero and decided all of a sudden in 1930 to, to start the winery. Hmm. Um, so that was your, your grandfather, Gaston, right? My grandfather, Gaston, correct. Mm -hmm. um, so he sold from the 1930s up to the late 50s, early 60s. That's when, I guess, the generation number two, that's my father, Serge, and my uncle, Ronald, uh, came in. That was a major step for us as a winery. When my father joined, uh, you know, his biggest, I guess, change that he made at the winery was when he took over from my grandfather. Actually, he almost kicked out my grandfather from the <laughs> winemaking process. Which I and love to hear. I mean, there, there's many stories of wineries around the world. I, Paolo Bay is another great example of John Piero, the son, you know, essentially fighting with his father and telling him, you know, we're not doing it your way. We're going to make a dry wine. We're not going to make a sweet wine. And I just love hearing that like intergenerational friction, you know, with one generation telling the other, like, no, this is how we got to do it. Yeah. The, the thing is, uh, but my father was young when he joined the winery, uh, mm -hmm. talking 20 years old at the time, but, uh, he was asked actually by my grandfather to join and he initially said, no, uh, mm -hmm. he was an engineer had his vision, I guess, of what he wanted to do. He was asked a second time by my grandfather, said no. Third time he said, okay, but you go. You go, not as in you leave completely the business, but at least um, I take care of the winemaking. That was what my father wanted to do. And yeah, uh, so it wasn't about uh, leaving. It was about, you know, I don't join. And if I join, it's on my conditions. Yeah. And if you met my father and for those, for those, uh, you know, <laughs> in the business who met my father, they would maybe understand. I mean, he was a <laughs> Scorpio, quite a big uh, personality. And yes, of course, that, uh, that made probably a bit of sense. But he had a talent. And this is where, I guess, even starting from 59, when he um, started uh, putting his imprint on the wines, uh, you know, his biggest decision at the time was to say, we will not embrace all the new technology, all the new 
chemistry that's being added into wine. Uh, you have to think of the late 50s, early 60s as a period where um, the chemistry that was in wine, uh, first fermentation, the malolactic fermentation, the second one, you know, all of this was starting to be understood. Before that, people just made wine but didn't understand necessarily the mechanics. And the reaction when you start to learn what's happening is that you want to control things. Uh, we as humans want to control things. And either because your terroir maybe is not adapted, it doesn't create everything that you need in a wine, or you need to add something, or you need to subtract something, you know, you know anything goes. Um, and the approach of my father was to say, no, we want to actually go back to the way wines were made before, before, you know, any intervention, or at least any additives. Um, and so that was his big move. Uh, so since then, we don't use any yeasts for fermentation. We don't filter the wines. We don't find the wines. We don't strip them of anything that could give them the ability to age and to evolve by, by filtering and finding. Uh, my father's uh, philosophy was that if you find or you filter, you actually take away something from the wine. And therefore, maybe you take away some of its ability to age, grow, uh, develop, uh, get more complex, uh, etc. And it, then it took him from early 60s to mid 70s to figure out exactly how to make the wines his way. Um, he was experimenting not necessarily with new varietals. Uh, he used the varietals that my grandfather had, maybe changed probably the blend or the mix. Uh, but I think mostly he also developed how, you know, the process of making the wines. When do you rack? When do you bottle? When do you put in wood? When do you, what container do you use? And, and he actually built the winery that we have now uh, so that, and it was all cement. You know, that was a decision. You could have done uh, stainless steel. But so there are a lot of decisions that were taken based on his non-interventionist philosophy. Which is interesting uh, because now, you know, this movement towards, you know, natural wine, everyone talking about sulfur regimens or finding or filtering, you know, not getting heavily involved in the vineyard. And it's crazy because you guys were doing that 40, 59. 50 years ago. From so, 1959, we started yeah. actually, more than 60 years ago. It's interesting when I talked to a lot of importers of natural wine, I was talking with one um, earlier this year, I think it was in like January, but he was telling me when he first got into wine and he was trying to figure out what made certain wines taste, you know, really unique. And now he imports, you know, natural wine a lot from the Loire Valley, parts of like Southern France and the Cote Catalan. But the wine that he was most excited about when he first got into the industry were your wines. He was like, it, it was just so unique, so different in the way that they tasted. So it's fun to hear that generation of wine importer talk about the wines of Muzar. It's super cool to see. Yeah, I mean, we, I guess in a way there was a lot of influence that we imparted or gave to, uh, you know, to some movements. Um, I know in Italy, our, our importer uh, came at the end of uh, the war, actually, in 89, mm -hmm. on the bomb, came to visit my father two years in a row, uh, despite all the mess around. Yeah. And then eventually decided to change his whole approach to his portfolio. So he got rid of 95% of his portfolio and decided to create a, a label or rating uh, that is used now in, in Italy by, by his company. Um, and the whole concept was wines with no intervention or very little intervention. Now, to be honest, we, we add uh, sulfur. We need to add sulfur. Uh, in the 60s, we weren't up to the 90s. In some vintages, we were not or very little. 
Uh, now our wines travel, and, you know, we sell in 70 countries, so we need to make sure that our wines are, are stable. Uh, but I guess uh, on the natural wine uh, uh, movement that you mentioned, I think um, obviously there's a fashion now that's going around. Uh, we've been doing it for a long time, but and, and I've tasted some amazing natural, organic, um, biodynamic wines. Uh, but in the natural movement, you also have some wines that are, how would I call them, maybe a bit more rustic sometimes. And um, it's not because a wine is natural that it doesn't necessarily uh, can afford to be what I call too rustic, meaning too rough or too... Uh, or, or not clear, uh, you know, it, it really, then it's a question of taste. And I think you can make wines that are in a natural approach or non-interventionist approach, uh, but still have them be elegant, be refined, being subtle, and not necessarily what, what I call more rustic. Yeah. Um, and, and this is where, I guess, we fit in both categories. Uh, there are many wineries like, like us in the world that fit in the non-interventionist approach, natural, organic, uh, we're not biodynamic, but some biodynamic. And you have others that fit into the natural, but are, you know, a, a bit rougher on the edges. You know, what's I, interesting I, though, is like, I've read through some of the like uh, vertical tastings that have been done of your wines. And, you know, decades ago, there was a higher level of VA in a lot of the wines. And I think there was a point where your father decided like, you know, the level of VA in some of these wines, we need to find a way to tamp it down a little bit. And then reflecting back on that, he's like, you know what, maybe that was the wrong decision. Maybe that VA, while some people found it to be kind of offensively high, I do think that it might have been the right thing to do. So it's interesting to hear kind of that transition over the decades to lower levels of VA or different levels of minimal intervention that went on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh for that the way i approach that your question is i'll answer it through a story of one of our vintages mm -hmm. uh, 1995 vintage red so usually we bottle our wines after three years and we sell after seven years 1995 there was one vat that hadn't completely finished its uh, malolactic so my father waited a bit longer for before bottling and also it was the vintage. Um, it, that vintage had just a lot of VA. So when we came to sell it at year seven, it mm -hmm. was almost undrinkable. Uh, it, just the VA was overwhelming. Um, mm -hmm. So we launched 95 and 96 at the, at the same time. 96 sold very well, 95 was very slow. But a year later, that VA uh, came down or settled, not came down, it's still there but it's settled, it's just integrated better in, into the wine. And 95 became, so at year eight, not at year seven, uh, one of our most popular vintages when we, when we started uh, selling it at that, you know, uh, after one year. Today, when we release uh, different vintages, uh, and I, I did a tasting in Hong Kong uh, with the wine society there, um, the, and, you know, we did blind tasting, 12 reds going back to the 60s, and 95, hands-on, was the winner. Wow. Um, uh, despite the fact that it has its VA, uh, you know, when you look at the ratings that we receive, uh, 95 vintage is one of our lowest ranking in terms of uh, rating. But when we released some 90, when we released today some 95, because we release uh, some of our old library vintages from time to time, 95 is the first one to sell out. It's really the most mm. appreciated. Uh, and so, um, 
yeah, you have to think of VA, again, if it's settled, if it's tamed, if it's well integrated, it's all a question of balance and, uh, and equilibrium in the wine. Mm -hmm. VA is what gives a bit of life to your wines. This is what allows the wine to jump out of the glass. When you smell a, um, a wine of Mizar, a glass, it jumps out. And this is a little bit thanks to a component of VA. Without VA, actually, the wines will be much more flat. And mm -hmm. they, they wouldn't have the life that they have. I, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think uh, one of the Cheval Blanc, the biggest years of, uh, I think, the 40s, I think, I don't know if it's 47, uh, um, uh, Cheval Blanc, again, don't quote me on that because I'm not 100% <laughs> sure of the vintage, but uh, was the uh, vintage that created the, the real name of Cheval Blanc and mm -hmm. had a very big VA as well. Yeah. Um, so again, it's all a question of balance. Um, and like any, anything in life, if you think of the wines as something that's a living product, you know, uh, and like uh, each of us, there, there are some good and some bad, but it's the yeah. package that creates the person. Uh, it's, a, it's a total combination of many, many things. And VA for wine is, is one of them. Yeah, I mean, I love, you know, the wines of Northern Italy, the wines of Bordeaux, the wines of Spain, Rioja. And all of those wines, you know, have some level of whether it's VA or Britannomyces, you know, which some people might consider a flaw, but many people, myself included, would just consider those like characteristics, which are perfectly fine in a wine and add character and add complexity. So, but it's true about your comment. I think overall, since the 95 experience, uh, 95 vintage experience, we've reduced a little bit uh, that VA as much as we can. It still is there, but I think it's less prevalent. Yeah. Uh, same for Brett. I mean, um, we used to have probably a bit more than we have. I mean, uh, today I don't believe we have any Brett in our wines uh, anymore. Um, but some people um, say, oh, okay, but this is, was the identity of Mizar. I don't think mm -hmm. it was the identity, but it, it was part of the identity. Today, mm -hmm. do we have a little bit of it? You know, I think it depends on the vintage. Um, yeah. And some people might consider that there is a bit of bread or a bit of VA. Others might say, no, there isn't any. Um, again, it's a question of uh, appreciation uh, and, and uh, yeah, uh, so, tolerance. So for people that maybe haven't had these wines before, we've talked a little bit about some of the flavor profiles of these. And we talked a touch about like the grapes that your father used. But in terms of varieties, there's a lot from, you know, France, you're working with Cabernet Sauvignon, you're working with Sanso, um, you use Syrah in a couple of your uh, cuvées, um, but then there's also a couple of indigenous varieties that you're incorporating into these wines, specifically white indigenous varieties to Lebanon, which I think in our last tasting together, we were talking about the role of climate change and how things are getting warmer, and you were talking about how those indigenous varieties that you work with actually withstand these, you know, fluctuations in temperature really, really well. Uh, it's a long. It's <laughs> I know long. there was a lot going on in there, yeah, but um, to understand that, you have to go back to when my grandfather started. When my mm -hmm. grandfather started, we had uh, no reds anymore in Lebanon uh, because we had phylloxera. There might have been some vineyards beforehand. Uh, but they probably all disappeared, at least the reds. And they were in the Beka Valley, that, or they might have been in the Beka Valley. Uh, on the other hand, we had uh, whites, which were local varietals of white, Obeide and Mavoir, that were existing in the Mount Lebanon area, so not in the Beka Valley, but a bit higher or a bit more further away in more secluded villages. And maybe because of the altitude, maybe because of the distance, they were not exposed to phylloxera, so they survived. And so when my grandfather started the winery in 1930, 
he had to plant reds and he went for reds from France because of the, I guess, connection with France of Lebanon, the language, him having studied there. Um, and for the whites, he just used what was available locally. So these two varietals. Uh, at the beginning, Obeide, uh, sorry, at the beginning it was Merwah, and then we added Obeide also at a later stage. And so these two varietals, compared to Cabernet, Sanso, Carignan, that are red, that, that we brought in, we, so we typically harvest uh, white varietals that we planted for our Misargen white. So that's our entry-level white. They are uh, they come from abroad. They are not the two local varietals that I've mentioned. We so we planted Chardonnay, Viognier, Vermentino that go into our Misargen white uh, entry-level wine. These are harvested in August. We then harvest from mid-August until mid to end September the reds, and then in early October we usually harvest Obeid and Merwah, the two local varietals. You know what? Which is a crazy is spread, right? I mean, that's a huge amount of time between you know middle of August to two months later. You're harvesting you know the indigenous white varieties. That's a huge length of time. Yeah, and what's surprising is that when you harvest, uh, let's say Chardonnay and Viognier in uh, early August, you are at 12, 13 degrees alcohol. You wait two more days, you're at 15. You wait a bit more. You know, so by the end of August, you'd be at crazy um, levels. Mm -hmm. But when you harvest in October, Obeid and Merois, you're typically at 12 or 12 and a half, despite these uh, grapes having spent so much more time in the sun, you know, uh, with the heat and everything. So you realize it's the nature of, of these varietals. They just produce less sugar levels. They take their time to ripen. I think it's because they are local. Uh, they are adapted to the terroir. They know how to deal with the heat. Uh, and so, yeah, th these are the components of, uh, of how they behave. And so they create wines that are a little bit different. They're not sweet wines because we don't have enough humidity in Lebanon to create, to get botrytis. Uh, but they are wines that have low alcohol level, but a lot of concentration and taste because they've spent so much time on the, on the, uh, on the vine. Um, and so, yeah, they create wines that have uh, complexity, that an ability to age, uh, which is outstanding. I mean, you showed 2009. That's a vintage that we released two years ago. We usually release our white after uh, eight, nine years, and they age another 20, 30, 40 years, uh, like mm -hmm. our reds. Um, not so. It's definitely not a typical uh, type of white wine. It's not a white wine that I would necessarily drink around the pool at you know as a cold wine. It's a white wine that I drink uh, next to the chimney, even in the winter, mm -hmm. uh, like a red. I would decant it. I would serve it at a cellar temperature. I would have it with food as well. It just is, you know, it, it's bulky, um, but it's extremely complex. So an unusual beast, definitely. I think that's something that's so, I mean, there's only a handful of wineries that do that. I think y'all and maybe Lopez de Heredia, I mean, the idea that like the most current release for your white wine or your rosé you know, it's years and years after most people have released theirs. Super fascinating. Yeah, yeah. so our rosé, our Chateau Rosé, which is also at top level, is released uh, earlier than the whites, mm -hmm. although it's produced with Obeide, Merois, so the two white varietals, and a little bit of Sanso. So our mm -hmm. Chateau Mizar Rosé is a little bit of a different animal. It's not a typical rosé. It's more, uh, I guess, a white in disguise, I would call it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it has the ability to age like our whites, but it's fascinating because just the addition of these uh, 3% of Sanso tends to change quite a bit the nature of the wine. And all of a sudden, it's uh, accessible, uh, drinkable, even when it's young. Whereas the whites need a bit more time to really uh, to, to mellow down and to settle down. 
the whites, if you were to drink them too early, they tend to be a little bit austere, a bit too austere. What's kind of the evolution of the whites and the rosés as you've gone through various tastings? Is there any sort of like trajectory that you see? Do they have like an upswing at a certain point? Is there a period where they mute for, for a touch? Like, I'm just curious in terms of like that aging. Yeah, usually I have that discussion on, on the red. So it's interesting to have it also on the whites now, actually. So when we release the wines uh, now, uh, so at let's say eight or nine years of age, you get a lot of typically, uh, on the palate, you have a lot, a lot of structure. You have a buttery component uh, that, that appears, but you also have a lot of hints of maybe exotic fruits that, that kick in on the nose. Uh, once the bottle has been opened and decanted and you've waited half an hour, 45 minutes, you start to get aromas of flowers, uh, jasmine, uh, maybe rose petals, maybe orange blossom, which is surprising because it happens also to be the same flavors that we have in Lebanon for our desserts. All of our Lebanese desserts typically have these orange blossom type of flavors to them. It's not something we've calculated, obviously. It's just <laughs> the nature, I guess, of these. Uh, if of it these grows yeah. together, it goes together. But so that's the phase when the wines are, let's say, 10 years old. Once they reach 12 or 15 years of age, um, they start to shed this component of maybe exotic and more and flowery components, mm -hmm. and they move on to more, I guess, more structured flavors. So we're talking maybe more honey, maybe uh, nuts, maybe uh, sometimes mushrooms. They take on also, you know, on, on the palate a much, you know, uh, uh, yeah, more uh, powerful uh, mm -hmm. component. Um, and so this is maybe at age 15, 20. And then if you go up to a vintage of uh, 75 or 70 white of Musar, or you know, even like the 60s, um, then they are amber in color, they are darker. Um, you would open them, depending on the vintage, you would, uh, you would see the dark color, you would smell the wine, you would say, okay, this is a sweet wine. No questions asked, this must be a sweet wine. Mm -hmm. But then on the palate, it's completely dry. Uh, and the nose actually has developed over 30, 40 years, a lot of these uh, sweet components, mm -hmm. uh, but not the palate. Um, one vintage in particular, for example, 75, you open it and over the course of two or three hours of tasting, it will go through a phase of maybe uh, uh, Jerez, mm -hmm. sherry, maybe a bit of Madeira at one point, and then even whiskey. And then it, it, and it's also a wine. And so it's a really a combination of many, many components of you know the, the four the four types of alcohols that i mentioned and it just goes through them one by one and then eventually it moves on to to being just a wine um so yeah extremely surprising uh, but beautiful to drink but again this is this is a wine that you drink almost like a meditation wine not a wine that you just uh, gulp down because you you'd miss the, the whole story the whole point of these wines is the evolution over two or three four hours or even days or even months actually yeah, we've had bottles that we've tasted over months. Oh, really? Like a bottle that you opened and it retained its character or, you know, it held uh, up at least. It, it held up. It retained its character? No. The whole point is that of one or two or three months that the wines actually develop so much complexity, but they change all the time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so even the bottle of 09 that you have now, if you don't finish it, you know. It's going to be tough it. to do not to finish it. Well, it's, it's an effort you have to make. Yeah. But, you know, uh, keep a little bit maybe at, uh, at the end and um, taste every night before going to bed. You just taste a little sip 
and even take notes if you want of what you're tasting and smelling and then see how that uh, how your notes will evolve over the, the whole week. I'm going to take it at the end of the night. I've got my melatonin tablets that I'll take and I'll have a little bit of my musar and head to bed. It'll be great. Put me right to sleep. It'll be you, perfect. Maybe you won't need the melatonin. Maybe just the <laughs> musar will be better. Maybe I can wean you off melatonin and move you on to musar. There we go. <laughs> that would be great. That would be good. <laughs> um, Musar's winery is in Gazir, which isn't like in the province or the governorate of Beirut. It's about what a 30 minute, 45 minute drive from Beirut proper. Yeah. Yes, correct. It's uh, north of Beirut, roughly, yes, a uh, 30 minute drive, 30 kilometers roughly. But the winery does maintain a shop in Beirut. You guys have a retail store in kind of the heart of the city, very close to kind of the downtown area. And it was only about an I want to, I looked it up. I think it was about a, a mile's distance from the port where the explosion happened. Uh, is, is the shop, was it okay? What, the people that were working there, was everyone all right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, thank you for asking. So yeah, everything's all right. Everybody's all right, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, damage, yeah, we've had damage. I mean, it's, our, it's actually our office, our Beirut office, that we also mm -hmm. uh, have a section for where we sell wines. Um, and like everything within uh, two or three miles radius from the, the blast center, you know, all the glasses, uh, glass is broken, all the windows are shattered, uh, elevator doors, doors, frames, everything was out. Yeah, so uh, uh, extensive damage uh, throughout the city. But thank God uh, nobody got hurt from our Mizar team. That was, uh, I guess, the, the good news. Uh, and the, uh, the winery is far enough that it wasn't affected uh, neither. You know, it's, it's crazy to think, you know, that that was just early August that that happened, you know, and in the weeks and months since then, you know, the entire cabinet has um, left. They've resigned from their posts. You know, we've had almost 200 deaths. And the amount of just destruction in the city I've seen that like UNESCO has stepped up to help with a lot of the museums, you know, that were damaged that are very close to where the Musar shop is in downtown Beirut. Beirut and Lebanon as a whole has been through a lot over the past 40, 50 years, right? It's a city that survived so many different things, but how has this most recent explosion impacted the way Musar is operating, if at all? I mean, I know that Broadbent right now is helping out they're donating a percentage of sales to um, nonprofit work, but what can people be doing here to help? Well, uh, yeah, so I think we were affected. The blast was one event, but I guess uh, what was even worse was the buildup to, I guess, to, to the, not specifically to the blast, but up to this period now and which started last October with the, the economic crisis that we've lived in Lebanon. The, the banks, uh, I guess, uh, blocking access to money, the Lebanese pound losing, you know, on the black market, 80% uh, of its value. Wow. Uh, so all of these have had a much bigger impact on the country, on the ability of people to spend, to pay, to get access to the money, to travel, to, to do everything. And prices of... Uh, Anything that's imported, which is roughly 95% of what we consume in Lebanon, uh, have gone also through the roof, anywhere from 
two times to three times to four times, you know, depending on, on the type of items. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the impact has been huge. Uh, and I think it's, this is what we've been suffering from much more. And obviously the last straw, uh, we've had COVID like everybody else. And then uh, this uh, blast in August. So it's been yeah extremely difficult and we've been uh, very well supported by a lot of people and a lot of our clients and consumers who wanted to help. Uh, so many like broadband have proposed to, to um, provide a part of their you know uh, revenues on Chateau Mizar sales to uh, to a charity uh, we've helped also with others uh, the book that we're selling online either through broadband or ourselves I mean we're contributing also part of it to mm-hmm. part of its proceeds um, to charity how can people help I guess Lebanon needs uh, attention I think all the monies that's being raised uh, that goes to charities is fantastic we also are trying our best as us, Chateau Mizar, to help all the people around us, all the people we, we can, keeping the jobs for all the people that we, all the staff that we employ. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so selling wines as well for us is an opportunity to help uh, at least where we can, uh, close mm-hmm. to us. And that's another way uh, also of helping. Um, the, the country definitely needs more and more, uh, I guess, hard currency income. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think the Lebanese industry as a whole, you know, there are not that many industries that actually uh, export from Lebanon. There are a few, but not that many. And uh, wine is one of them. Uh, and so any support you can get by actually people drinking wine is, is going to be helpful. Logistically, I mean, I imagine that that port that was so heavily damaged was the main place where wine was being shipped out. So is that affecting in any way shipments of wine right now? Well, you'd be surprised. And we were also surprised. But within um, 10 days from the blast, the capacity at the port was back to 30% hmm. in terms of ability to ship uh, containers and receive containers. Obviously, all the warehouses were blown away, but uh, I guess just the, the cranes and that part was further away from the blast. So hmm. in a way that it survived. And within a month, I think the port was at 90% back. Wow. Its capacity, yes, which was uh, or 80%. Uh, so that's uh, very good news, clearly for us as well, and any exporter, uh, for importers as well, it's very <laughs> important to have that access to, to, to the port. So that, that's the good news. I mean, we, we were very scared at the beginning when, when the blast occurred, but at least uh, that point has been uh, now, is, is, is past. we're past that point. And you had mentioned, I mean, that the value of the Lebanese currency, you know, was fluctuating so much. You know, I've had conversations with, you know, sparkling wine producers in the south of England. I know Broadbent actually represents Gusborn, but I remember talking to several of those producers in the southern coast of England making sparkling wine, and they had said that after Brexit, you know, one of the unintended consequences of it was that the pound decreased in value to the point that their wines were relatively cheaper in the international market. They could export more English fizz than they could previously. But I imagine that things like that play just as much a role in your ability to export as anything else, just the value of currency that can radically change, you know, the price of one vintage of Burgundy to another, just how the euro works out to the dollar. Um, It's funny, I think so many consumers, we don't think about those things when it comes to like the price of that bottle. We think about what's going on in the vineyard, we're thinking about what's going on in the cellar, but there are these other, you know, exogenous, you know, controls that are just fucking with things just as much as anything else. Yeah, I mean, that's the theory. Practice is a little bit different, unfortunately. Uh, Mm -hmm. It it really depends on the wines you have. Burgundy changes its price almost every year. 
depending on, uh, I guess, quantities and quality of the vintage. Bordeaux as well, but there is more uh, stickiness, there's more inertia in pricing. Other wines have even more inertia. So we price, for example, our, uh, for the US it's priced in dollars, for Europe it's priced in euros, for the UK market it's priced in sterling. So we take the currency risk. Uh, and so we will not adjust our prices in markets just because the currency has moved. You can't say that you will necessarily adjust all of your pricing based on currency, um, at least uh, not for us. Maybe others would do it, but not for us. Uh, maybe in the US, if somebody's importing from, Euro from Europe and they get a price in Europe uh, in Euro from their supplier, then yes, the importer will have to adjust based on FX because uh, that's his case. But um, in our case, we're selling to the US in dollars. So mm -hmm. it will not really change. And our costs also actually are, you know, unfortunately not going to change that much. Maybe the, yeah, the grapes will change, the cost of the grapes or the, the handwork, uh, the, the manual work. But, you know, bottle, cork, capsule, uh, paper, paper for labels, you know, um, uh, even if it's printed in Lebanon, the paper <laughs> in Lebanon will cost more because it has to be imported because unlike the UK, we only are 4 million people. We don't have an industry that covers every type of, uh, you know, sector. Uh, and so a lot of things are imported. So in our, the price of our bottle, there's a lot of, I guess, hard currency components, uh, which means that we basically will not be changing our prices uh, as a result of that. Um, and I mean, Musar, you guys recork a lot of your library releases um, and relabeling. I mean, I'm trying to think of other producers that take that level of precision. Uh, Medio Pepe comes to mind. You hold back about, is it 25% of each vintage? thereabouts or that has changed mm. so um in the 60s when my father was making the wines he would hold back at the beginning uh he was convinced the wines would age and would be better with time so he would hold back actually 50 percent wow. of the top wine of the chateau label huh? and he mm -hmm. would say we would sell out completely the younger uh everyday you know uh, entry-level wine let's say. um in the 70s, 80s, 90s, that level dropped. We got to roughly, depending on the years, really between 20 and 30%. Mm -hmm. um, in the 2010 uh, years and onwards, our sales continued to increase. Um, and actually, in the last few years, uh, we've been selling roughly 90% or almost 95% mm -hmm. in the first year. It's a testament to how much people enjoy these wines. Uh, yeah, it's I mean, it's a good problem to have, but it's also <laughs> a bad problem because our well, bad problem. No, I wouldn't say bad, but it's just different. The, mm -hmm. In the past, you would always because we've retained so much uh, wines and had the library, we were able to release any vintage of Mizar, any previous vintage at any time, and not in any quantities, but almost. Um, but you know, for today this has changed a lot, and you know when you we produce, let's say, 200,000 bottles of Chateau, label red, that's our top label. Um, we used to keep maybe, let's say, 50,000, 60,000, depending, depending on the year, maybe less. Now we're keeping 10 to 15,000 bottles. And if you want to sell these over 20 years, because we want to be able to provide a library, an old wine at any time to our customers, mm -hmm. uh, if we can, uh, it means you're only going to sell, let's say, 500 bottles a year of a vintage. 
500 bottles at our level, uh, you know, is, is not a lot of wine. Yeah. So today you're in an environment where there's less wine availability than before. There are still some vintages where we have good stock. And so for these, you know, we're still providing it to the market. It's still available, uh, 98 vintage red, 2000 vintage red, 2001, for example, are still available. Others are starting to be much more scarce. And when they become scarce, we at, at the winery, we release less and the prices also increase. And so the, 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 you could end up today with a 98 vintage, which is cheaper than a 2011 vintage. Because as soon as we reach a minimum level of wines at the winery, our prices go up. And now, you know, after one year, typically our prices go up substantially. When we move to the next vintage, the previous vintage will uh, have a, a quite a big increase in wine in price because we have almost no wine left. So what it means is that for all your listeners who want to age a bottle of Mizar and want to drink it in 20 years, uh, today it's not the same as before. You actually need to, if you want a bottle of 2011 or 12 or 13 or whatever vintage in five years time, you need to buy it now because eventually it, uh, it will not be uh, available as easily or at all anymore. You've got to buy it and then you've got to be really patient and just leave that bottle in your wine fridge, you know, if, and, and, and not touch it for a very, very long period of time. If you can, if you can. Yeah. <laughs> well, what else would you want people to know about what's going on in Lebanon, what's going on with Chateau Muzar? What else do you want people to hear? Ooh, um, well, I guess, as as you know, we're now the third generation. Hopefully, mm -hmm. uh, you know our winery will uh, continue with the fourth generation. When will that come? I really don't know. Uh, we'll plan as much as we can, uh, or you know, try to plan. But you know, as you know, in Lebanon and everywhere, uh, a lot of things that you plan don't necessarily happen. Um, <laughs> this year's a great example of that. 2020 is 2020 a testament is, to that. The black swan type of event. Uh, <laughs> Happen. No, but so we'll try to continue that and, and with the same philosophy, you know, our approach is, you know, wines that are with uh, very, uh, very or no intervention, very little intervention or no intervention, the same approach. We're obviously going to try to develop with the third generation. So we're going to develop uh, more wines, maybe not the Chateau label, the top is not going to change as a wine, um, but, you know, um, there will be more and more uh, and new wines that we'll create. And so, yes, we're trying to, to evolve uh, and not be static on the country, to evolve as much as we can, uh, but with the same philosophy in mind. Um, I think so that's really it, uh, interesting though, that idea of like, so many people know Musar for having this very traditional, you know, approach that hasn't changed a lot, especially under the Chateau label, right? Obviously there's vintage to vintage variation, but you know, the way those wines are made, there's a they're very traditional in character. And it's interesting to juxtapose that to this idea of like a changing demographic of wine consumer, a younger generation of wine drinker who's buying a bottle at the store, immediately opening it within 48 hours, a movement towards more, I don't know whether the word is like sessionable or more like casual drinking wine. Uh, it's interesting to see the way you all have adjusted to that with, you know, the Jeune label that you've created um, and kind of what's to come. Yeah, so th that's exactly where we can uh, do more. The Chateau is uh, sacrosaint, as we say in French. Uh, so that's not going to change. That will really remain the same. Um, but we can adapt or add new things at uh, mm -hmm. new wines. It's, it's actually nice to have a change and to uh, create new things. Um, 
you often talk or hear about different generations. You know, the first one creates it, the second one grows it, the third one uh, blows it all away. Um, and obviously, you want to make sure that doesn't happen on the country. <laughs> the third generation that increases it, uh, not increases it, but just develops it even more, uh, you know, and, and broadens it um, even more, and then uh, pass it on to the fourth generation to continue, but with the same philosophy, because this is where that's important to us. Even if we create wines that are young, like the Misère Jeune or, you know, new wines that we'll come up with, the philosophy will be the same. Uh, no intervention. And the idea is we want to show that it's not only classical, traditional, um, uh, you know, uh, wines that can work with this method. Well, I got I to gotta ask what you've been drinking during quarantine. I'm sure you've had a fair number of uh, Musar bottlings, but what, what's been your quarantine go-to drink? Yeah, well, I, it's, I'm a big fan um, of our 98 vintage uh, mm -hmm. in the red. You know, we do, all of our blends are roughly the same, Cabernet Sauvignon, Carignan, Saint-Saul for the Chateau. But every year is a bit different depending on the climate. Mm -hmm. And 98 is a vintage that is, uh, maybe has less power, but is much more elegant, much more subtle, much more uh, Saint-Saul maybe dominant, or even Burgundy-like in its structure. Uh, and these are the, the types of vintages of Musar that I enjoy uh, the most. And so, yeah, 98 has been my, my go-to vintage during these yeah. uh, uh, lockdown periods. Well, fun. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate your time. Um, I hopefully will see you here in Texas again sometime soon. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. It was really fun. And, uh, you know, uh, I hope your, your listeners also will enjoy it and uh, you know, get to experience at one point a bottle of Musar. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to learn more about the wines of Chateau Moussard, check out their website, chateaumoussard.com, or follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, their importer is Broadbent Selections, and they have great information as well. Uh, their website is broadbent.com. Fresh off the press is that book on Chateau Moussard. It's available now, and a portion of all proceeds of book sales and wine sales will go to support Lebanese charities. As always, you can subscribe to Buy the Glass on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, any of those other streaming sites. Um, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.